ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Well, Chris Hulsberg, it's really great that you're here because I was musing about where we met before and I remembered the BAM Awards which were in Cologne 12 years ago which is a bit scary and you performed live with uh with Sound of Games on on stage which was a a great honor uh to have you there and I was host of that evening so let's talk about your family you were actually brought up in a in um a musical family in a sense um how was that? Because whenever I talk to people who are brought up in a musical family, I have this weird vision of the Waltons, you know, so, <laughs> somehow sitting around a campfire, all playing music together, all sort of in harmony and everything. What, what was that like? And what sort of music were you surrounded by as a very young child? Yeah, so my grandmother, she was a, a prolific piano teacher. That was her main job, and uh, she had quite a, a status in town where uh, people wanted their children to to go and be taught by her. Um, so we were surrounded by pianos. We had two. We had an upright and we had a grand piano in the house. And so from an early age, I was exposed to um, to piano music, and a lot of classical piano music so um you know like from from bach to beethoven uh, uh all those um uh, things were like very prevalent us. and uh, my an uncle played trumpet and then there were some other things but it wasn't like a guitar family i would have probably become a rock star or something if there was a guitar in the house but uh but no it was the piano and from an early age i started playing uh, by by hearing, and then at some point they tried to teach me classical piano, uh, but I didn't like it very much. I was I was maybe like five or six years old, and I I held out for two years. Um, but my grandma, she was a lovely lady, and and I thank her for all her uh, love and contributions. But when she was teaching piano, she could be a little bit old school. And she would she would hit her students with a stick on the fingers if we made mistakes. So uh, I remember like a lot of students uh, shed a lot of tears there. And uh, so it wasn't quite for me. I, I knew that. Um, so but I got a little bit of the basics there. And then I developed a keen interest in electronic music. So uh, I remember one of the first pieces that I uh, that I really that that spoke to me was this popcorn 
piece, you know, this that that song that ran ran in the radio in the 70s. And um, I was intrigued by that because it was a sound I had not been exposed to. Uh, and then I discovered like electronic bands like Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream and uh, Jean-Michel Jarre and Vangelis and all those electronic music uh, greats. Uh, and, and that was the sound. Oh, yeah. And switched on Bach, uh, Wendy Carlos album. So that was uh, really something that 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 fascinated me that electronic sound and uh, so i tried to aspire to that and i wanted to do that in my future but okay i'm going to take you back a bit because there's some some things to unpack there but the um uh first of all when you in a sense um rejected the idea of playing the piano um, what sort of reaction was to that and what reaction came when you started, when your taste started to change and you ended up sort of being into electronic music? Were the family, was it just a very open family and they were very uh, uh, supportive of what your tastes and wishes were? Or, or were they a family who actually wanted you to go on a path that they wanted, like a lot of families do? No, I think they were overall pretty supportive. Um, so they didn't like force me to anything. Uh, I just did those two years piano lessons. And then I said, you know, guys, this is not working for me. And they, they let it go. That's that was OK. Uh, I do remember, though, my grandma saying that I'm wasting my talents uh, because she she saw something in me and uh, she wanted she wanted to nurture it, but she didn't pressure me too much. In fact, she was the one who uh, helped me finally get a Commodore 64, which which we're getting to. But um, that is, uh, and I remember also, they they uh, at some point I wanted to learn the drums because I had witnessed uh, uh, with another family member, this distant cousin where the drum set in his basement. And I was amazed by all the ruckus he could do with it, you know? And so I wanted to learn the drums. And then for my, I think it was my 11th birthday or something, they got me a drum kit. Uh, but unfortunately it was a practice drum kit, which didn't make much sound. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't have the uh, boomy drums or anything. It was more like you, you would hit the, the, the drum pads and they would make like a pop sound you know and so that again i did i stuck with that maybe for a year and then then i said this is also not for me so uh they, they were very supportive but it took me a while to really find um find my love and 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 my passion for something and i stuck with it eventually you you mentioned the trap popcorn, and that's quite interesting because the sort of famous version of popcorn is obviously slightly different to the George Kingsley version, which exactly. came a few years before. And, and so, I think I was just exposed to the hot butter uh, popular version and um, then much later discovered that it wasn't even written by them. But uh, yeah, very, very um, important for my, for my background. And it's a really interesting, you know, the original version is really interesting because it's quite different and from an album called Music to Moog By and a whole sort of selection of uh, of early 
uh, electronica, we could say, really, which is yes. which is really great. Um, now, you mentioned Tangerine Dream, you mentioned Kraftwerk and Jean-Michel Jarre, and this was a period where music was really changing and um, developing. Were you sort of also finding, um, maybe this is a stronger word, but were you finding some form of community of friends because of this type of music? Were you amongst a group of friends who were really getting into that type of music and particularly with you know Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk we have the connection to Germany so they were you know yeah from here um not many of my friends were sharing my my uh, passion for those bands uh it was more like a little bit later uh you know like in school you're exposed to pop music and particularly Britpop was also a major influence on me um, and then the whole um, new wave, uh, which which happened in Britain, and then there was also a German new wave, which was also fun. Um, and then <laughs> I have to admit, I was also a fan of Italo disco, which is kind of like the silly version of all that, uh, but very synth heavy, and uh, and that was also appealing to me. So I I was really into a lot of that stuff in addition to um, the those synthesizer bands like Tangerine Dreams. So can you tell me what really appealed to you um, from the, you know, the synthesizer? What, what appealed to you about it? It was this raw sound that was totally different from an acoustic instrument. You know, you could shape it with a filter and, 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 and those things. And those, yeah, they were just otherworldly kind of, uh, something something that um, was just different from my parents, what what they like to listen to, and um, it was the it, it was just like um, going into pop music that it shaped pop music at the time, particularly in the eighties, that electronic sound and the whole um, music production changed, and um, yeah. It, I I can't quite explain it, but it was something that was very appealing to me. Yeah, no, I think it's one of those defining moments in music that changes music and it changes. It's a generational change because yeah. somehow it represents the sound of the future. It's a cliche to say that with electronic music, but it did. <laughs> it was, a, you know, the sound of the future. And um, and therefore you are either young or old. If you're into it, you know, you're the you're the youth of the period. And so that's also part of, I think, the fascination of of the whole thing. It was for me at that period, totally. at least. What was your first video game experience? Uh, yeah, so video games uh, came into my life probably at the end of the 70s in form of um, like a street fair uh, was happening. And there was um, one of the... Uh, one of the booths had some video games set up on the on the street and uh, I had never seen one before I was maybe like uh, eight nine years old and this was this was fascinating so it was like space invaders that kind of stuff very very early video games I, I think it was slightly past the pong era um, but uh, it was still very basic um, monochrome displays that kind of thing uh, there was also one where you where you were throwing bombs from a blimp into a valley and things like that. So 
very, very simple early arcade video games. And I was hooked. Can and you explain why you were hooked? Well, I, I, I think these games, particularly when they were brand new and you're a young person, they're very addictive. Um, I mean, uh, they, they're just, there's a fascination there uh, that, yeah, whenever you like uh, grow up, video games have, have a strong pull. Um, and uh, I remember then the first arcade machines appearing in like um, some areas in town, you know, like uh, in some some restaurants had it and uh, some other places, the, the, um, the movie theater had a machine. And then uh, so it, we were always like looking for the next cool machine that was brand new. And uh, and and a lot of money went into those. I, I think I sometimes skipped my uh, my lunch uh, bread just so I could uh, save that uh, that the few bucks, put them in the in the arcade machine. Yeah, I remember myself being. At, I mean, I'm older than you, so I was at university, and instead of actually studying with a friend who was doing the same course, we would spend our whole time <laughs> playing against each other seeing yeah. the, with the idea of whoever would win would get the best degree and of course at the end of it neither of us did well of course that, that was a, that was a great idea yeah. yeah exactly um okay you mentioned the commodore 64 and that your gr grandmother helped you out can you explain what your why you wanted uh to get that piece of equipment and uh, also yeah what it how it changed your life i suppose so yeah, so uh, going back to my wish of of uh, owning a synthesizer and making synthesizer music just like Tangerine Dream or Jean-Michel Jarre, um, my family wasn't that wealthy and those machines were very, very expensive. I think like a basic synth would start at like 1500 Deutschmarks and, and the better ones, there were several thousand and that was just not in the cards for us. So uh, then, then um, a, a few years passed, and then I saw an ad in a in a magazine about the Commodore sixty four computer, and that it had a real synthesizer sound chip. And that you know, my mind uh, really then at that time I was maybe like um, thirteen or fourteen was like, here's my chance, you know, uh, this relatively affordable home computer has this synthesizer sound chip and I went over all the specs that it had like waveforms and filter and and all that stuff. Never mind that it was uh, still very basic compared to a professional synthesizer. But for me, that was like, I I could do music like Tangerine Dream with that, with that Commodore 64. That was my, my thought about it. A little bit naive, but uh, okay, we're getting to that later. But um, I saved up money. I uh, I um, dropped newspapers in all over town, uh, saved up some money. And uh, I had like, uh, I think I had 300 bucks and the Commodore was 400. And I almost bought an Atari XL, which has a shitty sound chip, you know? So, uh, because that was in my price range and my grandma saw that and she, gave me the rest of the money so i could buy a commodore 64 which i really wanted she she knew she, did it become did it become learning by doing or did you actually 
have someone around you who could really teach you how to use use it no that was that was the next step in the whole thing i brought that machine home and i switched it on and it's not like a computer nowadays or an ipad or something where you have like hundreds of programs and apps that do great music stuff there was nothing and i was sitting in front of like, what now you know <laughs> oh there's a handbook you have to learn programming this thing you know i thought like i'm gonna turn it on and make music with it it wasn't that easy so uh in the first year i was just playing video games with it even though i told my family i also use it for school uh yeah right <laughs> so i was just playing video games but there were some games that had some great soundtracks in it so um i i thought like okay um my my focus shifted slightly i thought like i have to learn programming i was into video games music was also a passion um so um i thought like maybe i'll design my own video games and i started with that and and pretty quickly find found out that like the basic programming language that came with the computer was too slow uh, it was called basic <laughs> And that is probably because it is pretty basic. Uh, and so I had to learn machine language. So assembly, uh, programming the, the, the CPU of the computer um, was the, the uh, building blocks that that had. And I was amazed how fast that was. Once I, once I got into it, um, um, I, I really thought like, okay, now I can actually apply what I learned here, particularly because I wasn't very good in designing or programming games. But a friend of mine, he was actually pretty good and he had already sold the game to a company, but he didn't, he wasn't good with sound. So I figured, okay, let's, let's apply what I learned with my passion of music and program the SID chip. That, that was the sound chip in the Commodore 64. And lo and behold, after two weeks, I had something uh, presentable and he was already working on the second game. And I went to him and played him that piece of music and, and his jaw dropped. He was like, okay, I, I want to use that music for my game. And so that was my first game music. That game was called Planet of War and uh, pretty basic shoot em up game. But um, yeah, it, was, it had pretty cool technology and it had my soundtrack in it. And How was, old were you at the time? I think I was 16. So what did school mean to you then when you were doing things like this, which was obviously your passion and you were having to, you know, tell white lies to your parents about this was a school project. What, right. What was the importance of school at that time? Did it have any importance anymore? It, it was it was never really important. I, I was one of those students who just got by, like, because I pr was pretty, pretty smart, I think. Uh, but I wasn't I wasn't a hard worker in school, so my grades were like um, maybe just above average. Uh, I, I probably could have been much better if I applied myself more. But um, my my passion was the Commodore sixty four and all that stuff, and I was all self taught with that with with those things, and and um, I pretty pretty quickly realized that this is what I wanted to do with my life. So, but I was still in school at the time. Uh, I was in, uh, I think, 11th grade when I did the um, the, the game with my friend. And then uh, shortly after, there was a, 
um, magazine contest for Commodore 64 music where they said like, hey, we, we have this contest. Um, uh, they paid, paid some money for the first prize. And the um, and then there was also like, um, uh, if, if, if you reached any of the first 10 uh, uh, picked entries, uh, you would get on the cover disc. And I thought like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply to that contest and uh, program the new uh, sound player for the SID chip that was much more sophisticated than the planet of war music and uh in a in a, a total overnighter uh, before the deadline of sending that piece in i i put together a demo piece for my new sound player essentially just showing off all the features that are programmed in and that became uh, shades the music piece i sent it in or actually my aunt sent it in because i had to go to school and I, I told her, hey, you have to get this into the post office because today is the deadline for this thing. And, and she did. And then a week later, uh, I got a phone call. And to, to my absolute uh, surprise, I won the contest on that in that magazine. So that was that piece shades. And that essentially really kickstarted my career. Now, the Planet of War piece that you did for your friends mm -hmm. game, that game came out later. Was there a moment of disappointment in terms of that you'd made the music and I presume the hope was that this was going to be on the market within about 24 hours. You know, I mean, you know how you feel when you've sort of created something, you want it out there immediately. And that didn't happen. Was there any any moment of, of doubt or of apprehension of what you're doing? Or was it something that you just sort of absolutely rocketed into with, with then Shades? Exactly. So after Shades, I made a, a editor program called the Sound Monitor for the sister magazine of the C64. They had like two big magazines in, in Germany and they had like the listing of the months feature where you could type in uh, all those numbers and then get like a program because like the um, discs were not that common yet on magazines. Um, and and um, that program then really opened things up to create a lot of music with the Commodore 64. For, also for other people, uh, essentially became also like the blueprint for later tracker uh, programs. Um, and and uh, so with that under my belt, which happened just in, in the months after Shades, I actually called up different game companies. And one of them was Rainbow Arts, which was the biggest upcoming game developer in Germany and I played them some tunes over the phone and they said we want to hire you right away full time and I said I'm, I'm still in school here I cannot do this right now uh, and then eventually they 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 got me I I left school uh, mid middle of 12th grade and I never looked back but um, because I didn't know what I was what what I, I knew what I wanted to do at that time, but before I wasn't sure what my what my career would be or what I would what I would study maybe at university. I was very worried about that. But once I had this in into a, a paying job and uh, I saw a career developing, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So uh, I didn't even think about Planet of War anymore. It took a while for for my friend to finish it and then get it get it sold. And it, in fact, it was um, 
published by a sub-label of Rainbow Arts. Um, and uh, I think I may have even had a hand in it to, to bring the two together and, um, and have it published. But at that point, I didn't even care that the music was not perfect for that. I was already in the middle of making some uh, new tracks for all the Rainbow Arts games. I mean, what's fascinating there is that, you know, that you phone up Rainbow Arts and there's this, I wouldn't call it the innocence of youth, but when we're, when we're young, we have this sort of fearlessness. Yeah. You know, and most people, when they think about something, they have this apprehension and then think, I can't possibly call the CEO of a company, you know, <laughs> particularly when you're very young, but you can, and you can do it and you did do it. Was there any apprehension or fear on your part or were you a sort of fearless young man? Oh my! Oh my goodness! Where do we start? I'm, I I was probably um, I I had a lot of anxiety um, from my teenager years into into uh, uh, much later in life. Even even today, I still grapple with that. Um, so yeah, I was I I'm still shocked that I was bold about this stuff, but I knew I had something. You know, so that gave me the confidence to call them up and 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 forget all about the other anxieties I had in life. So um, I, I, I was very confident about my abilities there. So um, it didn't even register. I just thought like, oh, well, you know, they can they can't say more than no. You know, so I just called them up and say, hey, I have these tunes here. I'm, I'm I think I'd like to work in games. Uh, if you have any games that need music, let me know. And he, after he heard it, he said, like, do you want to start here? What's interesting uh, as well is that at the beginning, I mentioned the, the BAM Awards, which was Computech and the CEO's Hans Ippich. Mm -hmm. um, and one he... of the first, the first game for uh, Rainbow Arts I did was a Hans Ippich game, a very famous one and infamous at that because it it was one of those games that was uh, forbidden in Germany. It, it was like a um, from, from the perspective of today, a very harmless uh, shoot 'em up game, but because it was called Soldier and it had like the connotation of like you're you're playing in a real war here, uh, the uh, the German authorities deemed it like uh, not appropriate for for uh, children and juveniles and they they had this like list of things that were forbidden to be sold in germany or, or at least like advertised and when you can't advertise a game that's the that's the death of a commercial product um so uh, yeah his his game got on the index on that list and uh yeah if you look at it nowadays you're just laughing about it but uh, at the time, that was the infamy of my first project with Hans Ippich. Yeah, what's interesting, Hans, I know that you're, you've are you been working together again, but we come to that later. But Hans wrote on LinkedIn that uh, that you'd met in August 86 for the first time. And at that time, the Rainbow Art CEO called him and said he had someone who could make the music for his first game. And of course, that person that he was talking about um, was you. Um, can you tell me about your process of writing for a music for a computer game back then and how that process has changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, at that time, 
often the music was not totally tied to like the visuals of a game. It was more like an add-on and you were just trying to do something cool. So uh, there was often like a counterpoint, I think, in, in music for, for a game. Um, but in this case, I did have some thoughts about it. You know, I thought like, okay, this is a soldier game. So maybe maybe we'll start out with some sounds that are a little bit grating and 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 disturbing. So I tried to simulate that with the with the set chip and uh, but then it, it eventually develops a nice melody and things like that. Um, but overall, over the years, it it became much more like um, what you would do in film music, where you look at the visuals and think like, what can I do to support those visuals and and hit the right mood here? But in those early days, it was uh, sometimes a free fall. You would just do something that was catchy and maybe had a good beat going or something, and uh, and 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 really just uh, playing up to the strength of the sound chip. Because that was the other thing; it was very abstract. Even though it was a synthesizer, uh, the sounds were still very abstract. You couldn't like uh, you couldn't simulate an orchestra with it. Even though in our heads, when we heard sit music, it was almost like a, a symphony was playing. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So tell me, you you know, you mentioned about the gameplay and that you, you at, at that point, it wasn't really thinking about the gameplay. But today, obviously, it's different with the different levels. So how do you approach something um, with the gameplay in mind? Yeah, I, I let myself guide by visuals, mostly. Um, I usually get like early versions of graphics or levels to see from from a game developer. And uh, I have, of course, like a design document of some sort where you can learn more about the, the story of the game. And then you or I start thinking about those terms, like what what's the emotional component here that the music could support? That kind of thing. But there's still even even to this day, there's sometimes cases where you where you want to try to counter to, to create a counterpoint to the visuals and maybe go in a different direction just to shake things up. But oftentimes it is um, comparable to film music where you're trying to match the visuals with the sound. So when did you get into film music as well? Because you must have had that as an inspiration. That, that was, yeah, film music is, is another uh, passion of me and still a dream, even though I, I, I am realistic about it now. It's, it's very, very difficult to uh, break into film music. Um, but yeah, I've, of course, then after my electronic phase came like a, a long part where I adore and still do like John Williams and, and Hans Zimmer and all those film composers and what they do with orchestras and nowadays also often with hybrid orchestration where you have orchestra and electronics and all that stuff but this this um you know movies particularly hollywood movies the, the big blockbusters it's this larger than life um 
uh, uh, visuals and and experience and the music is a big part of that. So um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I dreamt about also breaking into that industry, and it hasn't happened yet. I, I hope that one of my fans one day will make like a big movie and says Chris needs to make the music for that. But um, even if it doesn't happen, so I'm I'm still happy how how the career is developing. And I have some outlets, particularly um, there, there's a fan of mine who put actually together a symphony concerts from my game music. Uh, his name is Thomas Berker, and uh, he uh, actually did um, concerts at, at the games convention in Leipzig. That's how he started. And um, in 2008, he did uh, a deal with the WDR radio station in Cologne, where they played like a um, complete concert just with my music. Uh, it was actually the first video game concert, I think, even worldwide that was trend, um, that was live played over the radio. So uh, that was. Uh, an absolute mind-blowing milestone in my career, obviously. And unfortunately, my grandma wasn't alive anymore, but she would have loved to see that. I think all her early doubts would have vanished <laughs> at that point. And um, then we did some Kickstarters where we also did uh, orchestra recordings of some other games that I worked on. And and uh, yeah, it's it, I, I couldn't... I couldn't have imagined that in my early days that I would do something like that. How much of an emotional experience then is it to hear your music played by an orchestra? It's indescribable. I, I had tears running my eyes uh, um, from my eyes the whole time. It was absolutely insane. Now you mentioned, obviously, you know, you were talking about film music. I'm a screenwriter, and I sort of understand film music in in the way that it can really underline what the story's about, and it can give a slightly different nuance to the story, which is sometimes really exciting. And also, music can ruin a film. It can support a film and make it incredible, but sometimes right. if it's done badly, it can ruin a film. How can music done badly change the success of a computer game, can it? I, I would imagine so. Uh, luckily, it hasn't happened in my <laughs> career, but um, but but uh, I I could certainly um, I I mean I don't even have like an exact example, but I'm sure there were some games uh, where the music was subpar. Um, but then again, video games are much more interactive. Um, so if if the gameplay is still great, the music is shitty. I don't know. I think it could still work. Um, but hopefully uh, uh, teams were like selecting the right partners for the job or something. Um, so it hopefully doesn't happen too often. If you're not a fa fan of the game, I don't know if this has happened. If you're not an actual fan of the game that you've got to compose music for, how do you get yourself into that frame of mind to understanding the game well enough to compose the music? Because when I do interviews with people, Obviously, there are people that you know. There are there are there are mainly pop stars, but mainly pop stars. Um, they can be pop stars that I've never been really a fan of their music, but I have to put myself and find out things that I really appreciate and understand about them in order to interview them. So, how do you do that with a computer game? Right. 
there was one example in my rainbow arts days there was a game called rock and roll uh and um i'm not really a rock and roll type of um a fan <laughs> so i i always found it like very formulaic and 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 um kind of like simple very repetitive uh the rock and roll era um in fact if you like sometimes you compare two songs and really just the lyrics are different you could change the background music one to one and i was never like really a lyrics person probably because i started with those those bands like tangerine dream that had no lyrics um so even in pop music i i never really paid attention to uh, to what they were singing i was always like about the melody and the background music so when that rock and roll project uh, game project came along and they wanted to actually have even though it was like an abstract game was a marvel that you had to guide through some uh, obstacles and things um they wanted they thought it was a good idea because we have that title we also do like rock, rock and roll soundtrack and i wasn't really a fan of that but i still um uh, sucked it up so to speak and i i listened to some rock and roll and then i i i did my best to come up with something that worked for the game and and uh it, it was actually pretty well received by by the press and by the fans so um it, i i can just um i can switch that off my distaste for something and just just work it when i have to is it easier to write the music for a game that you've been involved from the beginning in the development of that you've been you know included in the development of it, it's definitely easier yeah why if if you're bring if you're brought in late in a project then it's usually a time crunch um so i prefer uh, much more to be involved in the beginning stages um of a game uh, and then already i can i can think of some uh some ideas uh, uh months months in advance and then work them out instead of being like uh you know, uh, thrown into the fire, so to speak, at the end of a project. I mean, what it, guidance are you given in terms of the music or what restrictions come up? Um, yeah, in the old days, there were a lot of restrictions in terms of like memory and CPU and all that kind of stuff. So you had to work around that. Um, but usually the teams, they, I mean, they, they nowadays they give me some pointers, but they also trust that I I feel out the game and I find something that that works for it. Um, so, and and then there's sometimes like a feedback phase, of course, where where we talk about it and and think, hey, can can we improve this or that or uh, if I have another idea, uh, bring it up and yeah, let's try this definitely uh, if there's time that's also another reason why you want to start early because you can try out different things and if they don't work you have time to uh, to go in a different direction i mean i think you've done music for over 100 games in your careers in your career so which is a, a massive amount of work you know of yes. contribution to that uh, industry you know and there are obviously sort of the 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 massive uh, successes, Turrican, Star Wars, the things that have really, you know, been the massive successes in in your life. 
What do you look back on and say, this was the most important development for me in terms of your own development as a musician? Yeah, definitely in terms of games, it's absolutely the Tarakan series. Uh, Factor 5 uh, are good friends of mine and... Um, uh, you can you can even see it today when you go to Gamescom. We have a booth there uh, every time, uh, and the fans are still like uh, you know enjoying coming up. It actually has kind of a renaissance right now because they re-released it through Strictly Limited, and uh, so it's um, it, uh, also something where I could totally be free in my creativity. It was really the culmination of the uh, years before um, of, of, of studying and self-teaching uh, that culminated in, in the op optimal sound, something that um, I wanted to do, which is synthesizer music with beats. Uh, you know, instead of like going into kind of the ambient things, I wanted to do something that has has some beat and drive to it, and the game was perfect for that. And um, and and also the tech technological advancement at the time, because it was the, those days, you know, with the sound chips, Commodore sixty four, and then the Amiga computer, they were quite limited. So you on the Amiga, for example, you had four sample voices, and um, I always thought of ways to enhance that, either by sampling chords and things like that. Uh, but also then uh, for Turrican 2, we did this um, thing where there was this amazing Atari ST programmer called Jochen Hippel. And uh, he was a friend of the company as well. Um, and um, he did like an emulation of my sound player from the Amiga on the Atari ST with the CPU. So I thought like, hey, this player is so powerful. It runs on a 68,000 CPU uh, on the Atari ST. Couldn't we port that back to the Amiga and use that on the CPU to mix four of those channels into one of the Amiga channels and then uh, keep the other three um, uh, original Amiga channels as they are. Then you have seven voices to play with. So uh, that was the idea. So he gave me a source code and um, I imported it into my player and made that infamous seven voice player that was showcased in, in Tarakan 2. And uh, to this day, that is probably considered one of the coolest pieces by the fans um, in the history of the Amiga. And so that's definitely my most important thing. Are you often led by the fact that it seems that this is also about technical developments in allowing something new to be able to be made. Is that something that is, that you're really aware of every time that you you get a contract for a for a new piece of music? That maybe ah, oh, how can I stretch this? How can I make something new? And Absolutely. then I have to look. You have to look at the technical developments. But that must be quite a lot of pressure because. You know, I, well, I don't know. Maybe you should tell me. Isn't that isn't that a lot of pressure? It, uh, of course it is. And I'm actually working on a project right now. I can't name the name, but um, I'm I'm really trying to uh, do a little bit of a counterpoint to not go with. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a long running franchise. So there's a lot of previous 
work in this franchise. And I thought like, let's change this up a little bit because if you just go back to do the same thing, then you're uh, running the risk of uh, just another one. So I wanted to push the envelope a little bit and so far the client is happy. So um, that's something I always try to do to, to find an edge. Now, when you're actually invited to do something like a Star Wars game, which you have been, the John Williams music is obviously incredibly um, iconic. And that's something that you're going to go and look into. I mean, as a fan of John Williams, I presume you knew all the music in any case, but you're going to go back into and try and understand the nuances of of, of that music. Um, does that make it harder or easier to actually then contribute new tracks you know exactly. i mean because this is such an iconic figure oh my god you you you're um definitely hitting a raw nerve there because that was one of the most daunting and and um scary projects for me the 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 reason was that i that i get invited to do this was that factor five which had moved to the us in 96 um, to establish a studio there and they were closely with uh, Lucas Arts. Um, they wanted to do this game for the uh, Nintendo 64, which was the last um, big game console that had cartridges instead of like a, a almost unlimited memory CD drive of some sort. Um, so we had to like fit orchestral music with a sound chip, not not like um, as as nowadays in a game, you can essentially play a studio recorded music. You have essentially it's something like an MP3 playing in the background, and it maybe gets switched up by the game logic. But it is a piece of music that's recorded in a studio, so I have no limitations. But with this uh, N64, we had a very limited amount of memory. And um, and I think we could during the game we could place uh, fourteen or sixteen voices of uh, sampling, uh, but even the sample memory for those instruments was very limited. To express like a full orchestra with that uh, was was a, a, an insane undertaking, and that's why they actually brought me over to the U.S. Uh, to work on that because they needed my expertise from my earlier days with the Amiga and pushing the envelope. So, and of course, I was a fan of John Williams, but the tricky part is they wanted me to uh, uh, transcribe about 50% of the music in the game from original John Williams music. And then the other 50% create new music that kind of like matched that style. And then you have to remember, I'm not uh, uh, a classically trained composer, even though I was two years of piano music. Uh, it, uh, it it was extreme. So I was like sitting there, not only trying to uh, do all the technical difficulties, but also I had my nose in in books about orchestration and 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 studied like a maniac on how to how to balance all the instruments of an orchestra and then squeeze them into like a megabyte of a memory, you know, like having all the strings and all the brass and all the percussions and all this stuff. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. I actually, 
I developed carpal tunnel at the end of the project. Okay. Uh, it got better over, over time again, but it was, um, yeah. And then I, I remember like uh, a few months into the project, I was invited up to the Lucas Ranch, you know, and and um, they were reviewing my stuff. They were like, "Oh, does does this music from Chris fit with the with the Star Wars universe?" And uh, it was insane, but it all worked out at the end. Uh, if after the game was finished, I couldn't listen to it for a year and a half because I thought like I uh, I had failed. But the game came out and they kept me there. So it must have done something right. And in fact, we started on working on the follow-up. So, uh, and then and then, uh, like maybe two years later, I popped in that cartridge and I thought at that time, with that time had passed, I thought like, okay, you actually did a pretty decent job here. <laughs> Do you think a film music composer has it easier than a games music composer? Because you're dealing, you're both dealing with images you're both dealing with dialogue but you're dealing with gameplay levels you know like there there seems to be additional things that you have to deal with do you think what are the differences and is it difficult or easier i i do think in some ways film composers have it easier because they usually get like a a, a piece of the film and they compose to the to the images they can uh, figure out where to, um, you know, what happens on the screen and try to match that musically. Um, with games, it's much more interactive. You don't know what the player is doing next. And particularly in, in, in a lot of games, it's more like an open world. And even in the, in the, in the Star Wars Rogue Squadron game, uh, we had missions that you had to do, but you were on your own flying around to get to the next point. So we had to actually devise a system where you had um, areas defined, invisible areas in the game that would then trigger the audio engine to do something with the soundtrack, either switch to another piece or bring in another element, uh, things like that. And that had to also happen fairly seamless. And then you had to also take care of like, what if the player flies along an edge of this these defined areas would the music just like constantly switch back and forth and create a jarring experience so we had to account for that so we had like we had like inner zones and outer zones you know like where the inner zone would trigger a new music piece but it wouldn't fall back until you went again through the edge of the outer zone which was larger things like that you had to think of and then working all those um, things i had i had to become part-time programmer again at the time <laughs> uh, to figure that out and um yeah but it was we we we, we got it done and uh it's also rewarding once you have finished something like that you can say hey i did it now, I mentioned at the beginning the, the Computech BAM Awards, which was in 2010, where we met, and that was because of Hans Ippisch, who I think was CEO of Computech at the time. We've also mentioned that one of your early um, games music was with Hans, an index game, um, and lately you've been working with him again. I don't know if it's the game you just talked about that you can't talk much about. What can no, you say about... Oh, good. Okay, so what can you tell me 
about the game and the music that yes. uh, you're developing with Hans. It's a, it's another project that is in its infancy, and I haven't seen it. I have seen some uh, early prototypes and things, but um, it is apparently some. It, it's it's got to do with VR, so you use VR goggles, and it's a game that you actually can play uh, when you're in a in a vehicle like a car or a bus or something. Uh, it, and and you you play the game and the the VR changes according to what the car is doing, so you get like the you get the motion uh, sensations from the car. I don't know how that's going to translate to me if I <laughs> would get sick playing that, but they're working on it hard, and uh, I I I will create music for that. So, but um, uh. I haven't started it yet, so we will see where that leads. But I'm excited to work with Hans again. Can I you tell? The, I think the company is called Holoride. Uh, that's right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Holoride. That's, that's the. the I mean, that sounds really fascinating because you know you must be at a stage of thinking, in terms of okay, you know, just just the thoughts going into your head. What what can I do with this? In a car or in an enclosed space, the music is very compounded, isn't it? It's very. You know, yeah. so where where are your just out of interest? I know it may become out completely different, and you may change all your your mind as you go along. But where where do your thoughts start on actually development, and where are you now? Yeah, I think I have to see a little bit more of it. Um, I saw some early graphics, um, but uh, I uh, hopefully at some point I can try it out myself to get a feel for it. But immediately I'm thinking like, hey. Can the music speed up when the car speeds up? You know, that that kind of mindset. So just to see what we can do to enhance the experience. That's brilliant. I really look forward to this. And I just want to say at the end, because you're, you've had such an enormous contribution uh, to games music uh, over the years and your wish to be um, a composer for a, Hollywood film and it, and sort of change places. Let's say maybe Hans Zimmer should change places with you for 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 one job. Do, um, do you do you have some connections? Can you hook me up? <laughs> I would absolutely love it if you, you 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 wrote the score to one of the, the the films that I'm writing at the moment. But it's got to get bought and made, so it's a long process. But okay. that would be absolutely brilliant. And I think what you could contribute to something like that would be something so different and and unique to the right style of of movie i'd i'd really love to see that but i just want to congratulate you on such an immense career and you know you mentioned hans zimmer in a sense you are the hans zimmer of of the computer game so that's that's what some people say yeah um we we have a similar path in that we were both uh, growing up near frankfurt germany and um yeah so but uh what yeah. one difference though there is one difference he was in the buggles <laughs> exactly yeah i yeah, think I, I think i was a little bit too late for the um for, for the advancements in in pop music um if i had uh if i'd been born a few years earlier who knows I might have had a real synthesizer earlier and maybe uh, would have made a mark in 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 synthesizer or pop music at that time. But uh, on the other hand, um, um, 
it's like I was in the right place at the right time for my career and 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 that thing and uh, yeah so it brought me to the US um, by the way I also uh, just a few years ago I uh, with my wife purchased some land in Arizona and we're in the process of building a, a house there and uh, it's it's pretty amazing I would have never thought as a teenager where this whole adventure would lead me well that's a wonderful way to end I mean and it's down to your incredible talent and I must say and everyone says this and it's absolutely true I mean you are a really nice guy as well so I can understand why people want to repeatedly work with you over the years not just because of your talent because of that as well and the computer games industry is far bigger than Hollywood so keep that in mind (laughs) maybe you don't ever need it (laughs) that's it Chris thank you very much that was wonderful thanks Steve ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com